Well, hey, I just want to make sure that these uh, are making sense to you. So who's Buddy the bath giver? John the Baptist, which they did such a good job with this because if we were just reading this by ourselves, we got two Johns and you're like, am I talking about John the author? Are we talking about John the Baptist? And if John the writer, his name is John the son of thunder and he's Buddy the Barker, right? And now we have John the Baptist and he's Buddy the bath giver. I'm just saying, that's pretty incredible. Um, well, hey, as we get started today, I, I want to give you context of this scene as it actually happens in the Bible. But to do that, I need you to feel something. Okay? And the best way I can get you there is to tell you about this thing that happened on my street. Last night I told you that I'm from like the rural backcountry of San Diego, right? But I didn't tell you who moved in down the street. One day we were driving home from school and we saw these huge water trucks driving up our street. And then we saw tractors being pulled on these giant trailers up our street. And remember going, whoa, because there's a bunch of like open land out, out behind our house. And we're like, maybe, someone's, maybe someone bought it and they're building a house or something. And then we started to hear the tractors moving over the hill. Beep, beep, just And we saw these huge mounds of dirt just being piled up. And we're like, what the heck is going on out there? Well, what we found out through the talk of the neighbors is that a famous X Games dirt biker had bought the lot and was building himself a dirt bike playground seven houses down from mine. And then whoosh, COVID happens. And now the X Games aren't happening in arenas packed with fans. The X Games actually came to this guy and they said, hey, we can't have crowds here anyway. Can we just do the X Games at your house? So for the last two years, the X Games happened on my street. Guys, I'd be driving my kids home from school, and they would see diesel trucks with huge trailers pulling helicopters wrapped in Monster Energy Drink logos driving up to the house next door, you know? We see all these racing gear and racing motorcycles coming up, and the boys are just freaking out. They're like, oh. And then, and then the famous dirt biker's mom hops on our like, Facebook uh, neighborhood group, and she's like, oh, hey, we're having the X Games at our house. Does anyone want to come over? Like, what? And guys, the helicopter and these drones would follow the dirt bikes as they like, jump in the air, and the helicopter's like 20 foot behind them, just, just stacking clips, getting footage to post to everybody. That was on my street. And my little boy's minds just went, they couldn't handle it, and immediately they caught dirt bike fever. Like, my, my smallest, he's seven, his name is Caleb. When he gets excited about something, he becomes a human chihuahua. Like, he just starts shaking. And when he's excited, he's only done this a few times, but like maximum excitement, he makes this noise that he's not even aware of. He's like, Ee! and then it just bursts out of him, right? He's like, oh, how many chores would I have to do to get a dirt bike? How much does a dirt bike cost? Do you think I could save up enough to get a dirt bike? Do you think eventually I could do a double backflip? How hard is a double backflip on a dirt bike? Am I going to die if I do? I want a dirt bike! <sighs> like, he's so excited, and so is my older one, and this is happening around Thanksgiving time, which means we're like six weeks away from Christmas, and I know the whispers that are happening in their brains. <gasps> what if? A dirt bike is possible for Christmas. <laughs> I can't contain it. Oh my goodness. And you know those little advent calendars where you like open the window for each day and then you eat the piece of candy that tastes like, like terrible wax stuff and you're like, wee, Christmas. You know what I'm talking about? Well, they even, they're so excited about this dirt bike idea that they, they weren't even eating the chocolate. They just open it and count backwards like 10, 9, 8, 10, 9 days till Christmas. And then the next day they'd open it, five days till Christmas. Just, oh my goodness, could it be a dirt bike? Could it be a dirt bike? Could it be a dirt bike? And they're so excited that they can't contain it, they're going to die. 
And that level of anticipation is the tension in the air that we feel as we pick up our story this morning. Just to end the story, me and my wife, we saved up and did side jobs and we found 20-year-old dirt bikes on Craigslist and we cleaned them up and they did get them. But the point is the anticipation that you cannot bear. Oh my goodness, it's coming. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 1. And we're going to start in verse 19 this morning. John chapter 1, verse 19. And as you're turning, this is what I want to tell you. The people who were excited, anticipating about the Logos becoming flesh, remember? Going, who, what, when, where? How is God going to do this? How is he going to come and be with us? It wasn't just the people alive in this time. It wasn't just the people we're going to read about in our story. The Bible says it was everybody for generations longing to know with anticipation, how is this going to happen? In John, uh, I'm sorry, in Luke chapter 10, verse 23, the Bible tells us that kings and prophets desperately wanted to know, how is God going to come and be with us? In 1 Peter 1.12, the Bible says that angels longed to know what you know, to hear what you hear. Guys, people of all time would have died to have the book that you have sitting in your lap that we read so casually about these events. Kings, prophet, angels were going... How is it going to happen? God's going to come be with us. And we're about to find that moment, the suspense resolved, the answer has come. So if you're at John chapter 1, verse 19, please say, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, you choir of angels. All right, here we go. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. We kind of saw that portrayed today, right? He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, nope. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And guys, the, the cool thing about the skit this morning is that that portrayal of him as this like sheepdog with fleas, that is so accurate. I want you to picture this guy because we get a description of him in Matthew chapter 3 verse 4 where we're told that John was this like nomad guy that lived out in the desert. That he really had this like long gross beard and long hair and he ate bugs and honey so there's probably sticky stuff and legs stuck in his beard, you know. And we're told that he wore a garment of camel hair, like just this camel pelt with a head hole cut in it, flopped over his body and tied around to his body with a, with a belt. And my weird brain goes, how did he get hairy camel fur? Was this guy like a camel hunter, like stocking one, you know? And then he killed it and skinned it? I don't know. But we're also told that he ate locusts. And some of you in here are like, I know what a locust is. That's a grasshopper. And you're wrong. Because a locust is like... It's like a Godzilla grasshopper. Like if a locust had a voice, it would be like, I am a locust, you know? Like they're like the size of a corn dog. So I just picture this guy wearing this camel flap with long, gross beards with stuff stuck in it, dipping these corn dog-sized grasshoppers into cups of honey, and then biting their heads off, just... <laughs> and the amazing thing is, this is the guy that the Logos, the god of the universe, decided... <laughs> He's going to make the way. He's going to be the one to announce to the entire world the word has come to dwell among us in flesh. He trusted that guy with, an, with a message this important. And another thing that's interesting to me in this is what John says about himself. He said, I am the voice of the one calling in the desert, in verse 23, 
make straight the way for the Lord. What he's basically saying is he's, he's like the guy that goes ahead of a king, right? Like when the king comes into the town, in, onto the street, the king doesn't just show up in a little commuter car honking his horn like, beep, beep, get out of the way, right? It's a whole pomp and circumstance thing. Like there would have been this guy going in front of him like, make way, make way, the king is coming. Maybe he had a flute like, you know, like he's here, he has arrived. And, and this guy's job, the one going before the king, would have been to remove any obstacles from the road. He's like elbowing people out of the way. Make, the, make sure the street's clear. Make sure the street's clear. Make sure everyone knows this big deal guy has come. And that's kind of what Buddy the Bath Giver was saying at the end there in our skit, right? So let's keep going. Here's, here's what we see in verse 29. Like my little boy Caleb... John the Baptist is so excited, still with anticipation that he can't contain it. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, it's like it welled up inside, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it didn't just happen once. In verse 35, it says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by again, he went, that's the Lamb of God. Like, he cannot believe the Logos, the God of the universe, is here. And in verse 37, it says, two of John's disciples, when they heard this, they're like, wait, what? That's the guy? That's the guy you were talking about? Listen, no offense, John, but we're out of here. And they left John, the, the, I was going to say John the bath giver, John the Baptist, to go follow Jesus. And now the word is spreading. The buzz is happening. He's here. It's that guy. People are pointing. And in verse 40, we see Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said. And who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to follow his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And in verse 45, there's two other guys. Philip grabs Nathaniel and he goes, listen, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law. And about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The anticipation is done. He's finally here. It's Jesus. And the cool thing to me is there is a nerd layer here that you may not have even picked up on. Every single person in this story who is talking, they're not just speaking their words. It's like they're talking in code. Every single person is quoting the Bible. And you're like, wait, what? You're saying Bible people are quoting Bible? Like, TJ, listen, you started off today talking about dirt bikes. Now you're talking about Bible people quoting. But like, this just got boring. <laughs> But, but track with me, okay? Here's what's going on. These people, the religious leaders, John the Baptist, the disciples, every single one of them was using the Bible to help them understand the world around them. In fact, they were going further than that. They were organizing their lives around what the Bible said and making it the most important thing in their life that decided how they viewed themselves, what they were interested in, their actions and what they would do with their lives. And at this point, I want to draw a line and say, that is them. And if we're honest, that is not me and you. We don't organize our lives around the Bible. If you're honest with yourself, I would say you probably organize your life around 
what other junior hires think is cool, the coolest thing that pops up on a movie or TV show or whatever, like being popular, all these different things. And so what I want to do with our time today is just give you three reasons why, like these people in the Bible, we can't afford not to organize our lives around what the Bible says because it is true and trustworthy when we live in a world of lies. And so here's the first reason that we can trust what the Bible says, that it is true and trustworthy. The first reason is that the Bible is rooted in God's character. And you'll be like, that sounds like weird Christianese. I don't know what that means. Well, think about what we talked about last night. If we establish that not just God is true, but he's the source of truth. And in James 1.17, we looked at that, which said, God is the, he's, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of heavenly lights. It's as if God is summarizing for us today and would say, listen, if you believe that I am true and good, then you can trust that my words are also true and good, worthy of living your life by. This is what uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says. <clears throat> Let me read this for you now. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible is supposed to be the thing that we organize our lives around. But some of you are in here and you go, listen, TJ, <laughs> you may not know this, but I'm a genius and a skeptic, and it's going to take more than you just telling me God's real and the Bible's good for me to, that sounds like a lot of effort, for me to go about reorganizing my whole life around the Bible. No, 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 my friend, you know. And the great news for you is that I can prove, we can prove that the Bible is trustworthy and true, that it's legit, based on like Indiana Jones type stuff. Here's the second thing you need to know about the Bible. The Bible is trustworthy and true because it's inerrant and infallible. That means it has no errors and is never wrong. Listen, guys, the stuff that I'm about to tell you, <laughs> if, I, if I told my friends, this is what we talked about with junior hires, they would go, TJ, we mean this in the most respectful way possible. You're an idiot. Junior hires are too immature. Junior hires, they don't have the attention span or the maturity for that. But guys, I have seen the true potential of a junior hire. I think so highly of you that not only can you track through some wizard level nerd stuff with me, but I think that you want the depth and the intelligent things of why we should trust and believe the Bible. Because if you don't have them, you're going to doubt and be a disobedient garbage Christian. Do you want to be that? No. That was the right answer. Good job. So I need everyone to raise your right hand. And if you solemnly swear to engage, to force your brain to go, I will try to understand this nerd stuff, please say, I. I. Oh, guys, all right. Let's, that's a verbal contract. Now you have to. Here we go. All right. Listen to this incredibly long verse and tell your brain, you will understand. Everybody say it. My brain will understand. Oh, I'm so proud of you. All right. Here's what it says. <clears throat> we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. This is 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Guys, what this verse means is that this book isn't just true. 
isn't just accurate, it's supernaturally true and accurate. That the God of the universe has committed himself to protecting and preserving these words so that what you have in your lap, you can know confidently, these are the words of God for me, and they're true and trustworthy. And here's how I can prove it. With some Indiana Jones stuff. Okay, are you ready? All right. Guys, when I was a little kid, I remember watching the Indiana Jones movies. And like the song would come on where it's like... And I would get so inspired that like the, the hairs on the back of my neck would stand up and the inspiration would well up in me. And I'd go, I just wanna, I just wanna like dig up a dinosaur skeleton right now and find buried treasure and like archaeology, you know? I know, I was a nerd kid. But the amazing thing is that in biblical archaeology, that level of coolness actually exists. And I just want to show you some for those of you genius skeptics who are like, prove it, bro. Prove that we can trust the Bible is. God's inerrant, infallible word. So, ba-bam, picture please. Guys, this incredible Indiana Jones looking place is called Qumran. It's this little cave up on a steep mountain and it was discovered in the coolest way. In 1947, there were two little shepherd boys hanging out with their little sheepies and they were doing exactly what you guys would have done when they saw this cave. They were like, bro, we should totally throw rocks up there and see who can get it to land in the cave first. So they're throwing, and they're competing, and the first kid throws it, and he misses, and the other kid's like, you missed, you suck, and then he throws it, and he misses, and they're heckling each other, and finally, one makes it in, and the sound it makes surprises them, because it doesn't just go, they hear a, there's a crash, something breaks, and their intrigue lights up, and they're like, there's something cool in the cave, and so they run over to it, one gives the other a boost, they climb in, and what that one sees as he peers over will change the world forever. What they found in this cave were copper plates with ancient inscriptions on them, words from books of the Bible. They found these ancient sealed jars, huge clay jars with inscriptions engraved on the outside. And inside they had papyrus, which is like tree pulp mashed up into thick paper that they would write on. They found scrolls and all of these amazing things that dated back to 150 B.C., over 2,000 years ago from today, and you're like, I don't care about archaeology. Who cares? Here's why we care. Because once translated, what they found is the words on those copper plates and on that papyrus and inscribed on the side of those jars were exactly the words written in the book in your lap today. For, two, for thousands of years, God has perfectly preserved with accuracy his word. I don't know if you've ever heard the argument that's like, well... The Bible's been translated so many times that they probably left out and lost words and this didn't communicate. And we don't even know if what we have in front of us is really what God wanted for us in the first place. Eh. Well, this disproves that. You can trust the word of God. And guys, archaeologists went on from these kids' discovery to find over a hundred caves with more scrolls and more copper plates and more cool stuff, just all the way Indiana Jones stuff. Can I give you another one? Yeah. Okay, look at you. You're not even sleepy. All right. Here's the next one. <coughs> Lots of people would look at the Bible, and they would say, oh, it talks about this guy named King Herod. King Herod, according to the Bible, was a terrible king who lived during the time that Jesus was born, and they would say, there's not a lot of historians outside the Bible who talk about him. This is just a made-up guy for a fake Bible story. The Bible's not real, and you can't trust it. But guess what they found in the dirt? They unearthed this place called Moresha a vast cave city, and not like caveman type city, like this place had factories in it, like all oppressive. It had whole houses with living rooms and bedrooms where whole families lived. And above it on the surface, they had massive olive orchards where they would grow world-renowned olive oil. 
and sell it to the queen of Egypt and all this different stuff. And this is where King Herod grew up, proved to be a real person. Let's show them the next picture. This is a place called Masada. This was King Herod's ultimate flex on the world to show how powerful he was. He had multiple mountaintop palaces like this where he would cut off the top of the mountain, build cascading pools and fountains and gazebos. That's the remnants of what you see there. Guys, I have stood in the king's chamber on the top of this mountain built by this guy who everyone said, it's a fake name in the Bible, it's not true. And now this archaeological site proclaims what you thought brought the Bible into disrepute proves it's inerrant and infallible. Let me give you one more. Have you ever heard of Mary Magdalene? Yeah, she's this lady in the Bible, friend of Jesus, listened to his teaching, followed him around. You can read about her in the New Testament. But lots of people would look at Mary Magdalene and go, she's not real. Because in that day, people's last name was like the town that they were from. And they didn't know of anyone else with the last name Magdalene. There's no town called Magdalene. She's made up. This calls Jesus into question. Is he even real? Can we trust the Bible? Well, <laughs> I love this one. I went to Israel, and while I was there, there was an active archaeological site. They were discovering this while I was there. And what happened was, there's this guy who wanted to build a gas station. Who's like, I'm going to make a bunch of money selling people gas. And when they went to go to construct the building and they started digging, they found this, an ancient synagogue. And in it, that's like an ancient church, they found inscriptions of this place called Magdala. And guess what? This was directly adjacent. It was now known to be one town over from Capernaum, the place where Jesus did his teaching and miracles, his base when he was doing ministry. So it's proven Mary Magdala wasn't just real. She actually lived in the next town over from Jesus again over and over and over. Every time someone brings a question to the Bible, the Bible smashes it into being untrue, proving its infallibility and inerrancy as if that verse in 1 Peter was actually true, that God has carried along and preserved and protected his word. You should have marvel for the book sitting in your lap. For thousands of years, it has been perfectly Preserved. And again, some of you are like, <laughs> cool, don't care. Listen, let me give you one more reason that we can trust that the Bible is true the way that it says it is. The third reason is we can trust the Bible because it lines up with our experience. I would tell you, I don't know if you felt this all the way, we live in a world of lies. And there is only one stable, unchanging source of truth that you can run to to figure out how to live this life well, and it's the Bible. And guys, in junior high, I didn't want to believe that. I grew up in the church, and around seventh grade, I decided, <laughs> I am not a Christian. This, this like, feels like a bunch of rules. I can't do any of the fun things that my non-Christian friends are doing. Like, God really just seems like a killjoy who gets enjoyment from telling me what to do. I, I don't want to, div to organize my life around that. I'm going to go find something else to organize my life around. And so I went to the world, right, ultimately, and I was looking for, what does the world say is the truth about what's going to make me happy? What should I designate my life to and organize my life around? Yeah, guys, these are great options, right? Here's what I found. I imagine it's the same for you. What was pitched in movies and commercials and just what other junior hires were saying when I was in junior high was, here's the truth. If you can just get popular, you'll be happy. You'll be satisfied with your life. That's all you need. This Christianity stuff, eh. And so, guys, I set myself to that. I, I made it my goal to become attractive and funny. I wanted my guy friends to think I'm strong. I really cared about what other people think. And I was actually good at it. 
I became popular in my eighth grade year in our little yearbook. I was voted best all around per person, which is ridiculous because it means junior high really is a popularity contest. And here's what I discovered. This truth, quote unquote, that the world was peddling, this is where you find true happiness. Well, I got popular. And you know what happened? Now I was constantly worried about what other people thought. I had to constantly apply myself to, what's the funny thing I can say? How can I impress these people? Does she think I'm strong? Does he think I'm cool? I wasn't allowed to be myself. I had to be this fake person, and I became hollow and anxious and insecure. And guys, it was a lie because happiness didn't, I'm sorry, popularity didn't make me happy. It made me miserable. The lie was pitching, I'm sorry, the world was pitching lies to me disguised as truth. And then I got to high school and everyone around me said, here's the truth. It's not what other people think of you. It's your experiences. It's your pleasures. If you can just get yourself to these crazy parties, then you'll be happy. You'll be so satisfied with your life. You're going to get a girlfriend. You're going to be drinking with your buddies Friday night at these ragers out in the, out in the country. It's going to be the best. And I went, okay. So on Friday night, I go to these parties. And you know what? The first 20 minutes, we're fun. We're talking. We're joking. We're hanging out. But then everybody has a red solo cup in their hand. And one cup, two cup, three cup, now we find out this guy's an angry drunk and he's trying to fight everybody. This girl's super loud and, and obnoxious and you can't hear yourself because she's yelling and doesn't even know it. This kid's over here puking his guts out and it's disgusting. And I realized pretty quickly as a high schooler, this wasn't a truth. The world sold me another lie. This isn't where happiness is. Every single one of these kids is going to wake up tomorrow with a massive headache, lie to their parents about where they were, and not even remember what they did last night. That's not Happiness, the world doesn't know what it's talking about. My peers don't know what they're talking about. But I was stubborn and I was still committed to not believing that the Bible is the truth I should organize my life around. So I, I took this rebellion with me into college. And in college, the new lie disguised as a truth was just make yourself impressive. Just become wealthy and that's where you're going to find true satisfaction and happiness. And so I made sure that I got a crazy good GPA in high school. I got into UCSD, into the Aeronautical Engineering Academy, and I thought if I can be impressive as an engineer and make loads of money and my friends marvel at me, then I'll be happy. And guys, when I went to visit my dorms and I was about to sign my loan documents, there was a senior in the same program that I was in. He had a job lined up. He was about to make a ton of money. He had all the things that I wanted, all the things that I thought were the truth that were going to make me happy. And you know what he did before he graduated? He was so hollow and miserable inside that he climbed to the top of the engineering building, jumped off, and killed himself. Guys, this isn't just a fun, silly point that I'm making to you. You live in a dangerous world that is constantly trying to trick you and sell you lies, to hurt you, to confuse you, to frustrate you. And so it should be amazing to us that God, in his goodness, gives us the one source of truth that doesn't change, that you can count on, that you can build your life on and experience his peace and his joy and his security, especially when you consider the alternatives. And I told you I didn't want to be a, Christi a Christian. Ultimately, I got so desperate by the end of college that this is what I found. The Bible was the only place that was actually accurate to my experiences. Remember I told you the reason we can trust the Bible is because it lines up with what we experience in life? Listen to this. This is Ecclesiastes 2, and if you know anything about Ecclesiastes, it's, it's viewed as like <laughs> this depressing book where it's like this was dumb and this was bad and this was not fun, but just listen to this. Ecclesiastes 2.10. 
And think about my life that I've told you. I denied myself nothing. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all its labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Guys, I spent 12 years trying to find truth in the world. And when I read that verse, it knocked me on my butt because I went, I have been running from the thing I wanted all along. This is the only place I can find truth that will satisfy, that's worth building my life on. But the, the crazy thing is the lies that we encounter aren't just out there in the world. I bet you've experienced this too. We also have lies that we have to combat inside us. I have this friend named Sherry. She teaches on this stuff, and she said it way better than I could. She basically said, on my low days, there's this voice in the back of my head that says, you're not pretty enough. You're not good enough. Those friends, they probably don't even actually like you. They hang out with you because you have to. Those things that you want to do with your life, you're not capable. You're not going to be able to do that. You might as well just quit now. You're gross, ugly. You should be insecure. You're not worth anything. And I don't know if you've ever had those insecurities or those guilt haunting you in the back of your head, but think about what that means. The state of our existence is the world around us is selling us lies. The voice inside us is telling us a whole other set of lies, and we need something to replace those lies with truth. One of the reasons I respect my friend Sherry so much is because she did something that I thought was amazing. She literally started making flashcards of verses that told her truths about her that would help her to combat all the lies that she was bumping into every day. And I want you to just listen to some of these verses that she had on flashcards and just pay attention to maybe how they make you feel. We'll see. As long as you don't have cold, dark, evil hearts. Okay, here we go. This is Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet one of them will fall to the ground outside your, not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Romans 8.35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In 38 it says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is my favorite one. 1 John 3, 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Here's the last one, Psalms 103. Praise the Lord my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desire with good things. Guys, we don't just care about archaeology. We don't just care that the Bible is true. We care that it's true because of what's in it. It literally is life and peace and joy for you in a world that's trying to tear you down, in your own thoughts full of self-doubt and ruination. God gives you an alternative. And again, you cannot afford not to organize your life around this true 
and trustworthy and amazing book that God has preserved and protected for you and put in your lap today. I want to tell you one last story. I was asleep in my bed, and I woke up to the most terrifying thing I have ever experienced. Above me, descending toward me, was something not the size of my hand. It was like the size of two of my hands. It was the biggest spider I have ever seen. I don't even know what it was. And I, I don't know if you've ever felt that thing where you like try to press yourself into your bed. like, <laughs> And I'm so freaked out that I can't talk, and I'm like sliming my way off the bed like, oh my... <laughs> And guys, I'm a newly married. My wife is laying in the bed next to me, and I'm not even thinking about the fact that this spider is about to come down and consume her face. I'm so terrified that I'm just getting away. I'm in self-protection mode, right? And so I'm in my underwear, crawling along the wall in the side of our bedroom, like, <laughs> I'm going to die. And then I hear this, honey, are you okay? And she turns the light on. And I realized I was sleepwalking. There was no spider. It was just a dream. Because the reason I tell you that story, I would say that's what God offers us in his world. We live in a world of darkness and lies where we cannot tell what's true and what's not. And that causes unnecessary fear and unnecessary frustration and unnecessary terror. And God wants to use the word to illuminate your life, to turn on the light switch in your life and say, no, look, there's peace. It's okay. There's one who loves you. You're going to be fine. It's good. But if you don't open this book, you're going to be in your underwear sleepwalking from an imaginary spider. You can't afford not to read this book. If you take this for granted, you're a dummy. Read it this week. And when you go home, read it some more. That's all. Let me pray. God, we love you. And we simply acknowledge how thoroughly good you are, that you answer the problems that we have, that in a world of lives, you graciously give us your truth, not in his agenda, not to convince, not to just to love and guide and grow us. God, you are worthy of praise and glory. Thank you for your word. Would you help us to retain a fascination for it, a love for it, to grow in it, for your glory and our blessing. In Christ's name we pray, amen.